0: Now, the World Health Organization has warned that the high number of COVID-19 cases in South Africa must be taken seriously. The WHO's emergencies chief, Dr. Mike Ryan, earlier this week said that he is very concerned that there's an accelerated COVID-19 situation in South Africa. And he says until recently, South Africa had remained relatively unscathed by the pandemic compared to the rising numbers seen in other parts of the world.
1: The disease, when it came into South Africa for first tended to come into, at the beginning, into wealthier areas and now has become very much established in, 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 in poorer uh, areas and townships and rural areas. So therefore, South Africa is experiencing that acceleration. But uh, it's not accelerating any faster than many other countries in eastern and southern Africa or all over Africa. In fact, the South Africa numbers may be large, but they've only increased about 30% in the last week.
0: And that was the WHO's Emergencies Chief, Dr. Mike Ryan. So uh, just to talk to us about this a little bit. Uh, we are joined by the Chairperson of the COVID-19 Ministerial Advisory Committee, Professor Salim Abdul-Karim. Thanks for your time. Welcome to Updated Noon.
1: A very good afternoon to you, Sakina, and to all of the listeners.
0: Professor Karim, uh, firstly, the rising numbers of infections that we are seeing in the country... Uh, If we are to describe what is currently happening, how is South Africa comparing to our peers, um, not only here in uh, Southern Africa and on the continent, but other parts of the world that we would ordinarily compare ourselves to?
1: Yes, when we think about, you know, when we had our first case on the first of March, that we were anticipating at that stage we would have a similar trajectory to the UK and many other countries where we were going to see a rapid escalation and then you know just the overwhelming of the healthcare service. But we avoided that and we avoided it because of very early action that was taken. But right at the beginning I when I addressed the nation, I talked about a difficult truth. And that difficult truth I said was that as we ease the restrictions, we are going to see the virus come back and it's going to continue to grow. And that's exactly what our current situation is, that as we ease the restrictions on the 1st of June, by the 10th of June, the virus was now spreading at a much more rapid rate in every province. And we're seeing a a very rapid increase in outing, and that's sort of tapering off a bit, a bit early to tell. And now we're seeing it increasing rapidly in KwaZulu Natal. Where does that leave us? Well, it means that we have a much worse epidemic than we had hoped we would have, because we thought that with the time we had, people would be more careful in implementing social distancing, wearing a mask, and so on. Because if we did that we wouldn't be seeing this kind of rapid spread of the epidemic. But we haven't been able to achieve that adequately. And there's probably a range of reasons why that is the case. But we've really got to do better because now we are sitting at about number four in the world, a situation that is really not a place we should be in.
0: Now, Dr. Kareem, um, you know, speaking of having to do better and the question then becomes so why have we relaxed um, some of the regulations at a time that we knew that we still haven't peaked in terms of the infection rate and also people are asking how much does your advice uh, actually weigh on uh, the ultimate decisions that government makes when it comes to the relaxation in a certain terms, uh, like from us moving from level 5 to 4 to 3. How much of your advice is taken into cognizance when those decisions are made?
1: Sure. So let's uh, uh, answer the first question, which is why did we have to ease the restrictions? Well, fundamentally... We were faced with a situation initially in the first five weeks that we had a very strict set of restrictions. And with that came a huge challenge of livelihoods, that people couldn't go to work. We then had a challenge with people feeding themselves. And so economically, our country was going into a very difficult situation. So we had to balance the needs to contain the epidemic with the needs for our country to be able to at least feed itself and, and, uh, and continue to work. So the only way to do that is then to res- you know to ease some of the restrictions. and that's what was done. The problem is that as you increase the, the easing process, we are effectively helping the virus to spread. because remember this virus cannot move on its own. It has no ability to move. It depends on us. Our behavior determines whether it moves and whether it spreads from one person to the other. And so once we ease restrictions, once we allow people to start moving around and going back to work, interacting with others, we are moving the virus. We had hoped that even though we did that, that we would have sufficient control over the spread of the virus, even when it's moving through social distancing and mask wearing. But we have found that that's not adequate, because even with a small number of people not following the rules, this virus can spread. It's what is called super spreaders. There's these few individuals, something like about 10 to 20 percent of people, who are responsible for about 80 percent of all the infections. So it's those few individuals who, not following the rules, not wearing a mask, putting it around their necks, going and visiting people, going to big functions, going to funerals, they spread the virus. And so we, we are fighting a losing battle because they're spreading it to hundreds of people and we can't get ahead of the virus. So that's the problem, and that's what we're facing at the moment. It doesn't need to be like that because if we were good enough in terms of a large enough proportion of us following the rules we could slow the virus down to what extent does the government follow advice the government uh, we ourselves report only to the minister of health so the we are advisory only to the minister of health he takes our advice and he passes it on and shares it in the relevant forum to date we have provided about 65 or so advisories Most of them, as far as we can establish, have been implemented in some form. And in terms of uh, when key decisions need to be made, we can be asked specifically. So, for example, when the most recent decisions were taken about restrictions in Gauteng in relation to the increase of cases in Gauteng, our advice was asked. So we get asked occasionally for our advice, but not always.
0: Were you asked with regard to the taxi situation and also the uh, reopening of schools?
1: Yes, we were asked by the Department of Health to provide advice on those matters, and we have. And when you think about, you know, just look at the situation in schools, for example. I mean, that is pretty well known, the situation. We've provided quite a lot of scientific evidence to show that you know, children are not at a particularly higher risk in schools than they are when they stay at home. But then the issue came about that, uh, you know, what about the teachers' risk? And when we look at the evidence on the teachers, the majority of the cases, as far as we can see from the current data, you know, almost all of the cases, uh uh, where the teachers are getting infected outside of the schools and are bringing the infection to the school. So that would have occurred anywhere, and that applies to any workplace. It's not unique to, to teachers. I mean, on that basis, we have the same problem in supermarkets or in my own uh, uh, university situation. So we have to ensure that when adults pick up the infection from their routine activities, that that they really follow the rules, because if they did, then we would minimize the number of ongoing spread. And in fact, the current data from uh, both the Western Cape, which was released two days ago, and uh, data from Gauteng showed that, in fact, the, the vast majority of reports among teachers are just a single teacher from a school. So they're not even spreading it much amongst themselves.
0: And uh, then also, uh, again, uh, the uh, taxis because 100% capacity and then you also have situations with uh, things like the casinos being allowed to open, restaurants, uh, Professor Kareem. And everybody is a bit flabbergasted because you can't go and visit your mom but you can meet her at the casino and maybe have lunch there.
1: Yes, we're in that very awkward situation. And we've been in that situation now for a good six weeks or so where we are easing restrictions at a time when the cases are going up. Now, the way in which the WHO has made its recommendations is that you should implement restrictions until you get a decrease in the number of cases. And when your cases are going down, that's when you ease your restriction. Now, if we had to do that, we would have had our restrictions for a pretty long period. I mean, we would have had starvation and other issues to deal with. And so it was not sustainable. Our restrictions were not sustainable. So because they were not sustainable and we had to release them, we had to ease our restrictions to ensure that people could continue with their livelihoods, particularly because there's such a large informal sector of individuals who are self-employed, that in that kind of situation, we had to have, there had to be some trade-off that had to be made. But that trade-off puts us in a very unusual situation. We're not alone. Uh, countries like India, Brazil, Russia, and many others are exactly in the same position as us. They are easing restrictions at the time that the cases are going up. When you do that, everything becomes a contradiction I when I address the command council I I use the term that at this stage when you are in this particular stage where we have been for the last six weeks it's damned if you do and damned if you don't because no matter which way you decide there will be some people say you should have more restrictions the cases are going up others say you should ease restrictions we don't we can't survive so You're dealing with that kind of situation right now, and we will continually face that because we're continually trying to find a balance between lives and livelihoods. And sometimes livelihoods take precedence, sometimes lives take precedence. And so we're in that unusual situation where, thank goodness, I don't have to make any of those decisions because they're really difficult decisions to make.
0: Difficult decisions to make, but uh, from what you are saying, would it be fair comment, uh, Professor Kareem, to say that because of the unique position we find ourselves in, perhaps uh, socioeconomically, and given the high inequality, as you say, people need to go out and fend for themselves, because of those type of reasons, would it be fair comment to say that um, the, the the economics of things has overtaken the science in terms of informing what we should be doing.
1: Yeah, I think that goes back all the way to probably you know the first of June, uh, but even as far back as the first of May, that you know we we were not in a position to ease restrictions on the first of June. We were not in a position to allow you know, something like 70, 80% of the economic activity to resume because cases were already going up at that time. They were particularly going up in the Western Cape. And we were then saying, you know, you can go back to work, you can go back to school. And people in the Western Cape are saying, but look at the cases going up. And we said, well, you know, that's, we're going to have to learn to live with this virus. So we've been in this really difficult situation since then. And Every In each case, people are having to make this fine decision, and sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong. But right now, the economic considerations are really uh, high priority, and that's why the cases are continuing to go up, and that's why so much of economic activity is being allowed.
0: So with that reality and um also, uh, the the fact that uh, more and more people are reporting, at least to us, Dr. Karim, where people are testing positive in the workplace and the workplaces are just continuing as if nothing happened. So you can only imagine a, a, a what sort of spread is taking place there. And you spoke about these super spreaders. Going back to that taxi situation, if the taxis are loading at 100% capacity, they are not opening windows because we know this, we see this, we drive past them every day. How does it then help us when people get to the workplace and they have to abide by regulation, sanitize, wear masks, do all these things, when they are coming from a taxi whereby none of these regulations were observed?
1: Yeah, I think the taxi situation is particularly complicated because, uh, you know, like the airline industry, uh, you know, you're having to take certain precautions, but at the same time, you also have to look at economic viability. So right now, from a health point of view, it would make most sense that there should be one empty seat on each of That's not a panacea, because it does not protect you. We know that the virus can still spread if you are within a matter of one and a half meters or at least a meter, and even if we leave one seat vacant in each row, the individuals, are, they don't have that one meter distance. So it's a compromise. So, and there's no, there's no study that's looked at where if you leave one seat empty, would that be better than no seat? So we have to go on what we call sort of first principles of common sense. And when we look at that, Ideally, we should have half the taxis. So, In other words, every alternate seat should be empty so that no person is sitting directly next to any other person. And that would be, from a health point of view, that's the advice that we would give. The problem is that if you give that advice, it has to be weighed against all the other considerations, like can a taxi be commercially viable and so on, and those are as I said, thankfully, not decisions I have to make and not, deci- not issues I have to consider. But if you ask me how would taxis best function in terms of preventing infection, it would be to ensure that there's uh, a wide enough space between each individual. And that would mean, you know, uh, 50% occupancy, Even if you take it up to 70%, where you don't have alternate seats empty, but at least one seat empty, that's another compromise. It's not ideal, but it's a compromise.
0: So, um, uh, Dr. Karim, just uh, final two questions. Um, If you can please just elaborate for us on the recommendation of the isolation period for uh, patients uh, with confirmed COVID-19 infections uh, being reduced from 14 to 10 days, um, why it's been reduced and um, what influenced this change, and also, uh, does it apply to those who've been in contact with or exposed to infected persons?
1: Yes. So that's a a very good question, Sakina. The World Health Organization had originally recommended 14 days and it was based at that time, very early on in February, uh, on the basis that most individuals who had the virus, they became negative on their PCR test uh, at about, you know, somewhere between 10 and 14 days. So at 14 days, those individuals then tested negative, and they could then be released. We now have several new studies that provide better information. And specifically, there were three studies recently that looked at this issue. And what they looked at is that even though a person is positive on the PCR test, because the test doesn't look for live virus, it just looks for the RNA of the virus, That even when that test is positive, there is no viable virus from about day seven, day eight. So in other words, when somebody has the disease and they start getting symptoms, the day on which they start getting a fever, a bit of a cough, from that day you can count seven, maybe eight days to be on the safe side. That for those days, the PCR will be positive positive and the virus can be cultured from their sputum. But after that eight day, there's no viable virus. So that means they're no longer infectious. So to be on the safe side, WHO, the World Health Organization, now recommends 10 days. So South Africa is now sort of lining up with that new evidence, and we've gone with 10 days. The 10 days applies to individuals who are being put into isolation. And that 10 days, depending on whether you've been in hospital and so on, it varies slightly in terms of the starting point for the 10 days. But basically, it's 10 days of isolation. For those who have been exposed, it's a similar thing. But if you've been exposed today, then we, if you're gonna get infected, you will get infected and you will be infectious for a period that will last up to roughly around 10 days. So that, uh, that quarantine period is now also 10 days. So there's a, it's sort of aligning with the new evidence, and it makes good sense, because if somebody is not infectious, why would you want to hold them for an extra four days when they're not infectious?
0: Well, uh, Professor, thank you so much for your time. We know you need to run. We appreciate you coming on to speak to us. And uh, that was the chairperson of the COVID-19 Ministerial Advisory Committee, Professor Salim Abdul Karim. And uh, you you, you can't have a five minute conversation with him. Uh, So we appreciate his time, but he has another commitment that he needs to go to. So uh, we thank him for his time there.